Football Hall of Fame, then one of these particular persons just might be on your list. You got uh, Joe Namath, Walter Payton, President Krieger's favorite, Bart Starr. You've got Marcus Allen or Roger Staubach. Or maybe you're not so much into football, but maybe your sport is basketball, pro basketball. So you might have folks like this. Larry Bird, very good. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Wilt Chamberlain, Magic Johnson. For some reason, I have an inordinate amount of Lakers up here. And it's interesting because I'm not a Lakers fan. But these are Hall of Famers. And then, of course, your list wouldn't be complete without... Michael Jordan. All right. Good. We're with each other this morning. Good. All right. But maybe you're not so much into sports. Maybe you're more into music. So maybe your Hall of Fame is more like Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So maybe such bands like Aerosmith makes your list. Or maybe you're really into the Beatles. Or maybe, throwback to the 80s, it's Journey. Or... Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin, or my favorite, Van Halen. So the interesting thing, though, is let's think about this idea of Hall of Fame in regards to our Christian faith. Who are your Hall of Famers from the Bible? Well, let's look at the Old Testament. Maybe you're really into the boat builder, Noah. Maybe he's your guy. Or maybe it's all about Moses, right? Or maybe it's that Judge Deborah, right? Or let's not forget King David, right? He's a major player in the Old Testament. But let's also think about the prophets. We've got that weeper Jeremiah, but we also had that long-winded Isaiah too as well, right? So maybe there's some of your Old Testament Hall of Famers. Let's talk about the New Testament. All right, everyone's got Jesus on their list, all right? <laughs> so, all right, I'm not showing Jesus up here. I don't want to get an email later on. Why don't you have Jesus on there? Because everyone has Jesus on their list, all right? So other people might be St. Peter, or maybe John, or maybe it's Mary, or the Apostle Paul, okay? We, we like to follow our favorite stars or our favorite, uh, whether they're athletes or rock stars or television stars or movie stars, right, kind of thing. And for Christians, it seems no different, right? We, we've got our favorites in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. And that's why um, we see a never-ending proliferation in Christian bookstores about books that are focused on character studies, on, on specific people of the Bible. And you know what? When we get to... Uh, Hebrews 11, it seems that, maybe at first blush, the same thing is going on here, right? We see this laundry list of people in Hebrews 11, and people like, for instance, Abel, and Noah, and Enoch, and Abraham, and Sarah make the list, and Moses, and, and we see these kind of inductees into the author's maybe hall of fame, so to speak. I find it very fascinating, this one's always mind-blowing to me, that he doesn't include King David. He says, I don't have time for King David. And I'm thinking, what? You don't have time for King David? He's like a major player in the Old Testament. And yet he has time for, interesting enough, Rahab the prostitute. That's something to think on. Something to think on. But you know what? 
I want to pause for a moment. And I want to ask some questions of the text. I want to ask, why does the author... Now, just throw this out there. We're not really sure who wrote Hebrews. Everyone kind of has their pet theories and their pet ideas, those kind of things, okay? But we're not sure who is the author of Hebrews. But the question, though, regardless of that, is, is why does the author include this Hall of Fame, so to speak, in Hebrews 11? You know, what point is he trying to make with including that in regards to the writing of this letter? Before we jump into that, though, we need to talk about a little bit, a little bit some background in regards to the book of Hebrews and say, why does Hebrews exist? What's the point to Hebrews? Well, we think that Hebrews was probably written in a time of Roman persecution, okay? We think that Hebrews was probably written to Jewish Christians. And the reason why we think that is because of just the breadth of material in Hebrews that is focused on the Old Testament sacrifices and the priesthood and what have you kind of a thing. It's just dense within the book of Hebrews. And we think that maybe Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians that during persecution were tempted to go back to their Jewish faith. That were tempted to deconvert, so to speak, from Christianity and go back to, to Judaism. Now, let's talk about that a little bit more. The Roman Empire at the time actually, for, for a good significant period of time, granted religious freedom, if you will, to the Jews. They could practice, they could worship without persecution kind of thing. And for a short period of time, Christians were included in that, and then that went away. So I want you to imagine, if you will, if you were a Jewish Christian, say, living in the Roman Empire when Emperor Nero comes to power. Okay. Emperor Nero was that first Roman emperor who started a pogrom, who started this, this uh, program of persecution against Christians. I want you to think about that. Think about how you, maybe you were Jewish and you converted to the Christian faith, and then all of a sudden, one by one, your brothers and sisters start disappearing. And you hear about how they've been taken away and, and thrown to the lions in Nero's Circus Maximus games. Or, or maybe you hear about how Nero gleefully likes to impale Christians on spikes and light them on fire as torches for his garden parties. That, that kind of background might make you pause and say, is it worth it? Do I really want to be a Christian if that could be what's going to happen to me. Now, on top of it, too, as well, is that Jewish families would sometimes also treat their children or relatives who converted to Christianity as out outsiders, as outcasts. They would treat them poorly. They would cast them out of the house. They would cut them off from the family. They would call them a goyim which is this Hebrew word that carries with this idea of being an outcast or an outsider. Goim is also this word that is similar to Gentile. Can you imagine being called a Gentile if you were a Jew? This idea that you're an uncircumcised, unwashed, unclean pagan. So you see those kinds of outward pressures and those inward pressures that those Jewish Christians had to face. And this brings us to some context which I think is important for us 
as we look at Hebrews chapter 11. And we're just going to look at these first two verses to start off with. So I'm going to invite you, open your Bibles. Um, If you want to pull out a pew Bible that is on page um, 1007, 1007. Two little starter verses that have got a lot going on here, right? Verses 1 and 2, Hebrews 11. We are in ESV, just in case you have your little mechanical apps that you got going on there, all right? So let's, let's read this together. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Now, here's the thing, is I want to point out here in this passage uh, two words. Two words that I think stand out for me, and maybe you might want to take notes on this. The first one is assurance. This word assurance, it's such a cool word, because it, it carries with it this larger sense of being something that's of a substance, of a firmness, of, of a confidence, of a guarantee or a proof. You see all that? That's kind of packed behind this idea of assurance. This word was also used at the time as kind of like a sealing of, of documents too as well, right? Somebody put their seal on a document and that document was assured. That was, a, that was an assured document if you're selling a property or those kinds of things that that sale occurred and that you had new ownership or what have you kind of a thing with that. What a cool word. We could also interpret this word being resolute confidence. I like that. Resolute confidence. Assurance. The other word that I want to talk about is... You know what? This isn't working well for me. Can you just push buttons? Thank you. Conviction. Conviction. Now, conviction, I think, is best understood by a quote from New Testament scholars Philip Hughes. He's a new... um, And he talks about this in regards to conviction in Hebrews 11, chapter 1. So we bring that quote up. This is what he says. This is a conviction that is not a static emotion or complacency, but something lively and active. Not just a state of immovable dogmatism, but of a vital certainty which impels the believer to stretch out his hand, as it were, and lay hold of those realities on which his hope is fixed, and which though unseen, are already his in Christ. I like that, this idea of conviction. Uh, Lay hold of those realities on which his hope is fixed, and which, though unseen, are already his in Christ. That really sets the tone for the nature when we talk about faith here. Can you bring up the next slide? And faith, by the way, is a gift of God. We have to remember that. When, when they're talking about faith here in this passage, when they're talking about this idea of faith being this assurance and this confidence, they're not talking about this idea as an assurance or confidence that's something that we kind of pull out from the inside. Okay? I find that a lot of people, when they talk about faith that day, kind of talk about this idea of this, this kind of sort of inward trait that we just have to kind of find it within us and look within us and pull it out. And that's not what it's talked about here. This idea of this assurance and this confidence This faith, as Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter 2, is a gift of God. It's something that's given to us. 
And so that's what the writer of Hebrews wants to highlight in regards to Hebrews 11, enlisting all these people. He's not, by the way, not trying to bring up these people to be moral examples to follow. <laughs> Trust me, they're not moral examples to follow. Okay? He's not placing them on pedestals, but rather he's wanting to bring them up to talk about this faith that they have, this assurance and this confidence. Can you give me the next slide? They have this assurance and this confidence, this faith in the promises of God. Okay? The promises of God. Now, what are the promises of God? We, we've already seen a little bit of that already with that Hughes quote. The idea here is the promises of God is that the coming Messiah is going to come. Okay? Those Old Testament saints that are in Hebrews 11, that's what they had, that insurance and that confidence, that resolute confidence, that conviction, was that the Messiah was going to come. Even though they did not see the fulfillment of that Messiah, they believed in the promises of God that that Messiah was indeed going to come. And they placed their hope and their trust in that Messiah who is to come. And the promises of God of the forgiveness of sins that is found in that Messiah. And so now we see why the writer of Hebrews includes this sort of hall of fame, so to speak, in chapter 11. Because he wants to tell to those Jewish Christians who might be tempted to walk away from the Christian faith to say, look, all these Old Testament people, the patriarchs and those kinds of things, they look forward to what has already come, the Messiah. And so to walk away from Christianity is really, in a sense, to walk away from fulfilled Judaism, for, for finding that fulfillment in Christ, who those saints were looking for. And so it was an encouragement to keep fighting the good fight of faith in that regards. Give me the next slide. So in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at some of these Hebrews 11 Hall of Famers, so to speak. And again, we're not looking at these people to put them up on pedestals. We're not looking at these people saying, oh man, I really wish I could be like a, a Moses or an Abraham or a Sarah. No, we're not looking at them as moral examples, because like I said beforehand, they weren't. Trust me, they had messed up lives. And despite of their messed up lives, in spite of the troubles and tri uh, tribulations they faced, in spite of the sin in their life, what we want to look at them is see them as fellow sojourners. People who look to Christ with that assurance and that conviction. Fellow sojourners. Because that's where the writer of Hebrews talks about. And in chapter 12, one chapter over, verse 1, he talks about these people as the great cloud of witnesses. Fellow sojourners in the faith, who, you know what, despite the fact that we're separated by time, history, culture, we find that maybe they really aren't all that different from you and I. Because they, too, recognize their sin and their need for a Savior. So I hope that you'll join us in the weeks to come as we look at some of these different folks in the Old Testament, these saints of God, and the assurance and confidence they had in the coming promise to come that we now look back to, but also look forward to as well, for Christ to come again.
Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, a word that comes to us in fresh ways by the movement of your spirit in our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you nurture our faith with your words so that we may grow stronger in our insurance and confidence in Christ our Savior. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray together. Amen. Have a dry day.